0: What's going on, everybody? Let's stand up, and let's sing together. know the scripture tells us that at your name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. God, here in this place tonight we want to posture our hearts in a way where we proclaim that you are King of kings and you are Lord of lords. You reign in this place tonight. God, we love you and we thank you there's no name more powerful than yours your name is matchless jesus god you are just so good and so amazing we stand in awe of you tonight god i ask that you have your way in this place I ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I ask that you prepare our hearts to receive exactly what it is that you have for us on tonight. And we pray all these things in the mighty and matchless and holy name of Jesus. And we all say it together as one church. Amen. How y'all doing tonight? I'll tell you what I am excited about tonight. I'm excited to see exactly how God's going to move in this place. And before we move on with the service, I'm going to invite you all to just take some time in community with each other. Take a time to just say hello to one another. Meet someone next to you. we got to set a few things up. Take some time.
1: Good evening everyone. I'm grateful that we're together. You guys sound awesome singing by the way. It just feels great in this room. Well I'm excited about tonight. We're starting a new series on Ruth. And we have a special guest that's going to be joining us. Carolyn Custis James. I'm just curious. Yeah. How many people have read Carolyn Custis James book? I just want to see your hands. And so there's many of you that have done that. Awesome. Well you have a fan club over here. That's amazing. I'm going to get to that in one second. Just uh, We are, are going to receive our offering right now. And so, ushers, whenever you're ready, you can come down. If you come prepared uh, to give, thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate that. Uh, Amy and I give online, which 80% of our people do. And so we're grateful for that, too. In this moment, it really is an act of worship. And so we say thank you, Lord, for what you've given us. We give it back to you. If you're brand new, you're visiting, this doesn't have to be your moment at all. Uh, if you'd like to take a part, great. So let me just tell you a little bit of story of how this came up uh, and how our special guest ended up here Uh, So a couple years ago, Steve Andrews and Paul Andrews and a number of people, their family, uh, were talking a lot about a book called Half the Church. And Steve was talking so much about it that I never read it. And uh, so I confess that. Now I did peruse it, but I never read the whole thing. And so uh, in my studies this past summer, I was with a, a cohort of people, and we were studying about power and gender in Christian leadership. It was probably one of the most powerful 10 weeks of study that I've ever done. It was uh, by a professor named William Corta, and William Corta wrote a book called Tug of War, and, the book, and this whole class came about of, out of this book, Tug of War. There was another book called Playing God by Andy Crouch that has just absolutely uh, changed my life as well. And then there was this little book called Maelstrom, written by Carolyn Custis James. I think I read that book so far three times, and it absolutely impacted my heart. And I've read it over and over. And then I went and, and, and got a book called Finding God in the Margins about the book of Ruth. And I started reading that. And then Andrew Kim, who's our teaching pastor here, he had a series that he wanted to, to write for us, for this group. And so Andrew said, hey, I, I want to do a four-week series on Ruth. And I said, that would be great. Have you ever read this stuff? So he went and read it, and he was like, wow, now I'm going to be honest with you. The first time I read Maelstrom, I read the first two chapters, and I was uncomfortable. I was like, wow, I've never heard this. Andrew, you and I talked about it. You were like, wow, those first two chapters, man. You know? But then when you, get, when you start seeing a bigger, wider picture, and all of a sudden something else opens up. God does that all the time, doesn't he? He challenges us. He shows us a new vision, and we get a wider perspective of who he is and what the image of God could look like. And so that really happened. And so I said, hey, wouldn't it be cool? I was going to do this first week because I'm so passionate about this. And I said, wouldn't it be really cool if I reached out to Carolyn Custis James just by chance? So I cold emailed her, not cold called her. I cold emailed her. And a couple days later, uh, she emailed me right back. And I said, wow, awesome. You're, you're amazing. You're this way blah. And she said she would come and she would speak tonight. So I want Kensington to give Carolyn Custis James a round of applause, like a Kensington family <laughs> welcome. <laughs> See, uh, Lou gave you a standing ovation. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> well, I would love to pray for you. Uh, I got you. to spend a little bit of extra time with you today. And there were a couple moments where my heart was so opened up to a vision of the Lord. And I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm grateful you are an Azar warrior. Azar. Rhymes with Razor. (laughs) I I learned that from you today. But you are an Azer warrior. You are such a strong leader, and you are a visionary. And so I'm grateful that you would take your time and you would share your heart with us. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this power follower of yours. The way that you've given her a warrior's heart, a sharp and intelligent and insightful mind, and the courage to move forward in the midst of a new thought. Thank you, Lord, for the ground that she's opening up. Thank you for this time we have today. Father, we always say the same thing. Let your words be our words. Your words have eternal power. Let them be tattooed on our hearts, mind, and soul. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
2: Amen. Thank you. Well, I have to say these speaking engagements are a two-way street. I get more than I give, I think, with the encouragement that comes my way. So thank you for that. And this evening already has been a huge encouragement to me. When Danny called me, I, I, you know, it's hard for me to turn down an opportunity to talk about the book of Ruth. And um, this last week, my husband got sick with the flu. And I said, I'm not going to have a, Thing to do with you because <laughs> I don't want anything to mess this up I want to be sure to be able to go but anyway he's better now I'm sure we'll be friends when I get back <laughs> <laughs> but anyway yeah um, my nephew was born with a vision problem and um, they finally figured out that there was that there was something wrong with his vision and they took him to the doctor, and he ended up getting uh, glasses prescribed when he, before he could talk. And he was sitting there with his pacifier in his mouth, and they put the glasses on him, and his world came into focus, and he dropped his pacifier. <laughs> and I have to say that f- for me, and I'm sure you will relate to this, that for a long time, We've been looking at the stories of women in the Bible through the wrong end of the telescope. And their lives get small. And actually of the characters in the Bible that are female, it's like 10%. So it's not a, a lot of women. But their stories get small. They're not as big and important as what happens with the men. And I will never forget the day that someone turned the telescope around for me. And I saw Ruth in true perspective. I grew up believing that I was, as a woman, born to follow. That I wasn't to initiate or take the lead. That I was to look to men to do that. And that men were responsible for things. It led to studied passivity, practicing how to hold back. The book of Ruth went off like a bomb in my life. I did not see that coming. I never knew that God expected so much of me. I grieved. I still grieve over the opportunities and blessings and privileges and gifts that God has entrusted to me as he entrusts to all of us. I've been living in the book of Ruth ever since. There's hardly a day that goes by that I'm not pondering this small book in the Bible so I have to say that tonight I'm restraining myself to just give an introduction to the book of Ruth. I've written two books on the book of Ruth. Every time I think about the book of Ruth, something new emerges from its pages, and I think that's true of the whole Bible, that we've just barely skimmed the surface of what there is to learn. And, um, and that's what has happened with me for the book of Ruth. So I hope you're buckled up. Um, As I said, it went off like a bomb in my story. I hope there are going to be more bombs (laughs) that go off as you study through this amazing book. So what I'd like to do this evening, um, I'd like to do two things. I want to give you some tools, some keys to unlock the book of Ruth and unlock any biblical narrative. So four keys that I want to talk about. And then I want to take those keys to the text and just give you a taste of what you have in store as you continue to study this amazing book of the Bible. So, the keys to unlock the book of Ruth. The first thing is that God is the hero of the story, God is the hero of every story in the Bible, and we lose sight of him when we elevate somebody else to the stature of of a hero. It's always first and foremost about God. When we open our Bibles, the first thing we need to be asking ourselves is, what does this tell me about God? The purpose of the Bible is to reveal God to us, to reveal his heart, his character, his ways so that we can learn to love him and to love what he loves and to care about what he is passionate about so the book of Ruth is first and foremost a book about God it's not a love story first and foremost i don't think it's a love story at all in the sense of romance But it's first and foremost about God. So when we read the book of Ruth, that's where our focus should be, first and foremost. The second thing is that every story in the Bible is framed within God's greater story for the world. In the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, God is vision casting for his world And the vision he casts for us is something we need to study and ponder because it is rich, much richer than we typically think. I mean, the creation story is so familiar to us that we typically just breeze right past it. But what we have in Genesis is God's vision for the world. And it's a vision he's never abandoned, even since the fall. The whole Bible is the story of how God is pursuing and recovering that vision. He has a vision for human beings that we would be his image bearers. And we typically think of that as that we are different from plants and animals. We're a higher life form. But what it means is that we have the highest possible calling any creature, any being could ever have, because we are created to be like God. We are created to be reflections of who He is, to be His representatives in the world, to speak and act on his behalf, to pay attention to what's going on world in his world, to embrace His vision and to do what we can to move things in that direction. Jesus came to restore that vision. So it's a vision for men and women, for every human being, to be a reflection of God, and it comes with enormous responsibility. But the other thing we learn in Genesis 1 and 2, and I hope you'll read half the church because I go into more detail on this there, but that God created us to work together as male and female. That when he creates the woman, He says it's not good for the man to be alone, not because there's something wrong with the man, because the man was created at the peak of God's creative activity. He's a masterpiece. He's just named the animals, which is the beginning of science. God isn't saying there's something wrong with the man. He's saying this is what he needs, and there are no parameters to it. In Genesis 1, it says that he created his image bearers, male and female, that he blessed them. And that he sent them out to do his work in the world. And it encompasses everything we do in the world. And we're called to do it together. And I don't think male and female relationships are a problem that we just need to tinker with and fix. In the, in the book of Genesis, in God's vision, male and female collaboration and partnership is a kingdom strategy. It's how God means for his work to be done in the world. It's a vision of unity, not unity born of sameness, but unity that is miraculous because of our rich diversity. So God is the hero of the story. The story that you read, these stories in the Bible are framed within this greater story. They're pictures either of how things have fallen apart or how God is changing lives and moving things forward. The third thing is that the Bible is a literary work of art. So whatever it was you learned in your lit classes can help you study the Bible. The things I'm telling you about these keys are not rocket science. You don't need a seminary degree to be able to do this. Um, if you want a seminary degree, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. Because <clears throat> I know a great seminary where my husband is. But, it's, you know, this is something anybody can do. We can go to the Bible and say this is about God. We can go to the Bible and we can say this is part of the grand story that God is weaving for the world, and we can go to it and say this is a work of art, that every word matters, every character matters, every scene matters, that when you go to the book of Ruth, what happens in chapter 1 goes into chapter 2, it goes into chapter 3, it goes into chapter 4. It's a unified whole. The key word in the book of Ruth is the word "hesed." The Hebrew word "hesed" is a word for love that is the love God has for his people. It's the love we are to show for one another. We don't have an English word for it. It's a love that is voluntary. It is a costly, sacrificial love. And it is unstoppable it is the bedrock of god's people and it's the heart of the book of ruth hebrew writers would repeat words in the text and you know english readers like don't like to read the same word over and over again so we miss sometimes the themes but hesed is the theme in the book of ruth the fourth key is that the bible is not an american book When we open the pages of the Bible as Americans, we are as far away from the world of the Bible as you can possibly get in today's world. And if we read the Bible without leaving our shores, we will misunderstand the message or we will miss it altogether. So we need to learn about this. You know, traditional interpretations of the book of Ruth tell us that this is a beautiful romance between Ruth and Boaz, that Ruth is a beautiful damsel in distress. And it just so happens that when she goes out to glean in the fields of Bethlehem, she ends up in the field of a handsome, rich bachelor. And he comes to the field and their eyes lock and they fall in love and she proposes marriage and, she, and they get married. And she gives birth to a baby boy. And before you know it, this is what we're talking about. <laughs> you know, and it's, it, this is not going to preach in today's world. The Bible is not telling fairy tales. The Bible is for the real world where you and I live So it's it's a Middle Eastern book. We need help from people who come to us and they're coming into our culture from other cultures that are are patriarchal cultures. The story of the book of Ruth takes place in a full-fledged patriarchal culture. When you read the Bible, this is where I've landed on this. That patriarchy is not the message of the Bible. It is the backdrop to the Bible's message. It is the perfect cultural backdrop that sets off in the sharpest relief the strongest uh, gospel vision of the message that is being portrayed in the Bible. Patriarchal cultures are cultures that center on men. The word patriarchy means father rule. It is a world where sons are prized and daughters don't count. It is a a culture where a woman derives her value from men. Who is her father? Who is her husband? But the big question for a woman is how many sons does she have? A woman's contribution in the world is to produce sons for her husband. Barren women in the Bible are not pleading with God for daughters. They're begging God for sons. The production of sons is a matter of stature in the community for a man, that he has many sons, but it's also a matter of family survival. It's an utter calamity for a man to die without a male heir. You measure the value of a woman in a patriarchal culture by counting her sons. It is within that world that the first five verses of the book of Ruth take Naomi to ground zero of her own story. And the killer verse for Naomi comes when we read that she was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi is past childbearing years. They won't, there won't be a chance for her to begin again. And what scholars have said about Naomi and the book of Ruth is that we are reading the story of a female Job. Like Job, Naomi has lost everything. She's been through a famine. She's become a famine refugee. She got to another country and her husband dies. Her two sons marry pagan girls and they go through 10 years of double infertility. And then instead of a positive pregnancy test, both of her sons die. Job questions God's justice. Naomi questions his Hesed. In patriarchal cultures today, widows are among the most at risk to abuse, poverty, trafficking, and powerlessness. Widows in today's India speak. For Naomi, when they say, this is not life, we all died the day our husbands died. The cry that is heard from Naomi in the aftermath is not overkill. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The tragedies that befall her drain her of everything that gives her value and meaning and purpose as a human being. Naomi and Ruth both are instantly at risk without a male in their family to defend them. Anyone can abuse or exploit them with impunity. Protections that we assume in our culture are completely missing for them. And Naomi's questions at the beginning of the book of Ruth are the questions that the book of Ruth is going to address. God doesn't speak to Naomi through a prophet or a priest or a voice from heaven or a vision. He answers her accusations through Ruth. The three main characters in the book of Ruth are unlikely allies. We have Naomi and Boaz. Naomi has given up. As I said, she's past childbearing years. She can't, there's no point in getting married. She can't have another shot at bearing a son. She's finished. Her life's work is completely destroyed. And un, unlike Job, who can begin again as a woman, she can't, she can't start over. And you count her sons. Naomi, culturally speaking is a zero, and she knows it. She and Boaz are both native-born Israelites. They've been raised on Mosaic law. They are, they are true believers in God. But they live at polar ends of the social spectrum. The power differential in this book between men and women is extreme. Naomi has given up she wants to go home. She has learned that the famine is over and she wants to go home, not to live, but to die. She's running out the clock. And Boaz is introduced into the story as this powerful man, a man of valor, a man of enormous stature in the community, of great power. And he has wealth and he is just an amazingly strong figure introduced. He's male. In a patriarchal world that at birth will bestow on him power and privilege. He has wealth and he has pedigree. He's an Israelite blue blood. He's born to Israel's leading family in the tribe of Judah. He is culturally empowered to lead. And then we have Ruth. Ruth's entire story gives us nothing that would cause us to think she's promising at all. She is in an exaggerated state of insignificance and powerlessness. The first thing we learn about Ruth is that her father married her off to a famine refugee. It echoes reports that we hear of current uh, refugees who are marrying off their little daughters to um, have one less mouth to feed because of the Terrible circumstances that they face. Ruth appears to have been a casualty of the patriarchal culture's preference for boys. She reminds me of a young Palestinian girl who was born the last of five daughters. Her parents named her Taimam. It means enough or finished, signaling their desire for the long run of daughters to end. In a culture where marriages were arranged to improve the status of the families of the bride and groom, marriage to a famine refugee doesn't exactly sound like marrying up. The marriage ended after 10 years of marriage with the death of Ruth's husband. 10 years without a pregnancy. She is certifiably barren. It is catastrophic. She is lacking the one, the number one criteria that any respectable man would be looking for in a wife if he logged on to eHarmony. <laughs> her decision. What happens is that she she is, a, she crosses the border with her mother-in-law. It was a kind of decision when she's left with the choice between going home to her family and what would be Jordan today or going with her mother-in-law to Israel she if you weighed the options between the two the negatives would win out and she would go home to her family where she would have the support of of her relatives and the protection that her father could give her and possibly could be he could possibly negotiate another marriage maybe Because she's barren, she could be an extra pair of hands in a polygamous marriage. But she has no future in Bethlehem. Her decision came on the heels of a litany of events that cemented her low status in society. It wouldn't matter which side of the border she decided to live on, she'd be in the margins. Except for her mother-in-law's determined efforts to stop her from going, her border crossing came off without a hitch. There was no ban on Jordanians, no security checkpoint, no wall, no barbed wire, no drones, not even extreme vetting. And it's a good thing she didn't have a passport, a visa, or a green card. To be fair, Naomi didn't try to stop her because she was a racist. She did it because she only meant to spare Ruth from the suffering the long road of suffering that lay ahead. There was no future for Ruth in Bethlehem, only poverty, hardship, vulnerability, and potential for abuse. Once in Bethlehem, because she had no means of support, she went on welfare. She became a common field laborer, scavenging in the field for scraps of grain left behind by hired harvesters. And that put her in the path of a powerful landowner. Again, the power differential between male and female in this story is extreme. It couldn't be more pronounced or chilling. It is, in fact, the makings of a Me Too story. But this is where Ruth's story invades the present. Sometimes biblical narratives sound like they've been pulled from today's news. The pivotal moment for Ruth was on the road between Jordan and Bethlehem when she dug in her heels and refused to obey her mother in law by returning home to Moab. This is one of the most powerful conversion stories. In the Bible, this moment on the road is where the light penetrated the darkness in her heart. And there would be no turning back to that darkness. The center of Ruth's gravity changed forever at that point. She is Yahweh's child now and she will live as one. The girl who arrives in Bethlehem is not the same girl as the one who left Moab. According to culture, she's a zero. According to her other demographics, she's dropped below zero. She's an undocumented immigrant. She is foreign in this culture. She's impoverished. She's a widow. She's out there scavenging to survive. I love that about her because she draws a big enough circle that every one of us can find ourselves inside that circle. She's counted out by the culture for all sorts of reasons, but she is not counted out by God. There are battles to fight. There is hunger when they arrive home and a family that is dying out without a son. These battles will require an amazing level of boldness on her part. It will require her to move out of her comfort zone and make radical proposals to a very powerful man. The meetings between Ruth and Boaz, there are two of them. One is in the second scene and the other is in the third. And he is a powerhouse of a man and she doesn't know how he will react. She She reaches this encounter with him in his barley field and at his threshing floor. Both encounters between them center on the mosaic law. The gleaning law regulated that a harvester, his workers could le- clear the field one time. They could not go back for anything they missed. They had to leave the edges and the corners of their field unharvested. And when they were finished clearing the field, they, that's when the gleaners could come in and pick up what was left. It was a hand-to-mouth existence. And it was an open door for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner to come and collect the scraps, whatever's left. The Leverett Law is about progeny. It has to do with when a man dies without a son, how there is a way to remedy that situation and give him a male heir. And the kinsman-redeemer law is about land. It's about real estate. It's about what a relative is supposed to do when when his relative falls in hard times and has to sell his land. These encounters are complicated further by the fact that Boaz has just been through 10 years of famine. He's in economic recovery. He's determined to make Bethlehem great again. These encounters between Ruth and Boaz are not romantic, they are gospel. They are about making sacrifices for others, for Naomi. Their conversation centers on a discussion about the letter of the law or the spirit of the law. Ruth lives on the hungry side of the law and the law reads differently from that vantage point. She reinterprets the laws to to Boaz to benefit Naomi. And she leads Boaz from the letter of the law to, to embrace a generous interpretation of the spirit. And Boaz, this powerhouse of a man, is big enough to listen to this little nobody scavenging in his field. He listens and he learns from her. And he changes and he acts. He issues a series of executive orders, he gives Ruth, permission to glean in territory that is banned to gleaners. She may go where the harvesters have just cut down the grain and are waiting for the women harvesters to come along and bundle it off to be carted away to the threshing floor. She can go where she can get a lot of grain. He gives her protection. He tells the men who work for him not to bother her. Again, he prevents a me too. From happening. He gives her access to water so she doesn't have to waste time. He provides for her a cooked meal and he gives her more than she can eat. At the end of the day, Ruth lugs home 29 pounds of winnowed barley. And when her mother-in-law sees it, she says he has not stopped showing his hesed to the living and the dead. This is the turning point for Naomi. What Ruth brings home is the mother load of grain. Ancient Babylonian records tell us that for a male harvester to bring home that much in pay, he would have to work a half month to a full month. This is way more than equal pay for equal work. And and through a load of barley, Naomi senses God has not forgotten his love for her. It is a powerful moment, and it is a moment where Naomi becomes a Hesed giver, too. Second meeting is at the threshing floor. This is where, this is a time of celebration at the end of harvest. There's partying, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And Ruth comes to Boaz in the dark of night. And approaches him. No one is looking. He has all the advantages over her. She is totally at his mercy. If it came down to a he said she said, no one in all Bethlehem would take her word over his. But Boaz knew someone was watching. This man lives before the face of God, and that governs the kind of man he is. What you have in the book of Ruth is the coming together of combinations that in today's world turn into horrific explosions and terrible behavior. You have male and female, rich and poor, powerful and powerless, valued and discarded, native-born and immigrant, Jew and Arab, Nitro and glycerin. These two lives, and Naomi joins them in the end, they converge in these explosive combinations. But what you find in the book of Ruth is that the gospel's power destroys the dividing wall that stands between them. In the end, a hungry widow is fed. Naomi's hope in God revives A dying family is rescued from extinction. An entire community is blessed. And God's purposes for the entire world move forward through the sacrificial actions of these people. They never knew how much God was doing through them. So let me leave you with some things to think about here. The first thing to remember when you read the book of Ruth is that there are no zeros in God's eyes. No one is too old, too young, too marginalized, too worthless in the eyes of the world or the culture to be insignificant in God's kingdom. God can be very subversive. And sometimes how he gets things done is in ways we would never imagine. So think twice before you count anyone out for God's purposes, including yourself. That's why I love this story because, you know, you you have someone who's below zero in the culture, and she is leading the action in the book of Ruth, and Unbeknownst to her or Boaz or Naomi, cosmic events are at stake in what they're doing to deal with local family problems. No zeros in God's eyes. You're not a zero. Who knows? God could be doing the most important things in the world today through you some little conversation, some act of kindness, some moment in your own story that you think nobody's watching, but it ripples out from you to who knows where. We don't know what God is doing. They didn't know what God was doing in their lives, and we don't know either. Whatever we think it is, we're underestimating it. No zeros. The second thing is, if God chose Ruth... A cultural zero and a nobody, to be strong and courageous, to take the initiative and lead, to speak out and to sacrifice on behalf of others. Every woman and girl in this room should be asking, why not me? This is the part of the story that utterly blew me away because when I saw Ruth initiating the action, I knew. I had no excuse. I don't care what the debate is about women in, this, in the church or in the wider world. When I stand before Jesus, I don't want to be explaining why I did too little. I'd rather be talking about why I did too much. Ruth uses her voice on Naomi's behalf, even though the culture denied her a voice. She exercises agency, even though the culture denied her agency. And she fights for Naomi's rights, and Boaz takes that battle and moves it forward. She draws strength from underneath Yahweh's wing, and that for her is enough. God calls all of his image bearers to be leaders, to pay attention to what's happening in God's world, to take responsibility and to do something about it. He didn't create us to be spectators. God help us to be strong and to speak out for others like Ruth did. There are no zeros in God's eyes. If Ruth, why not me? And the third thing is that this is a crucial time for men and boys in our country. Boaz belongs in discussions about masculinity and manhood. Not for one second in this story does Boaz surrender his male power and privilege. He shows us that male power and privilege can be a beautiful thing when God gets a hold of it. The world is different because of the kind of man Boaz was. He redeems male power and privilege. And the world desperately needs more men like Boaz. So remember Ruth and Boaz and Naomi the next time you hear a Me Too story. These stories don't need to happen. So that's what I'm going to say about the book of Ruth. I do hope and pray that there will be some explosions in some people's lives here in Kensington Church. God bless you as you dig deeper into the book of Ruth. And thank you so much for letting me talk about it. (laughs)
0: We clap for her one more time. That was awesome. Let's stand and sing together.
3: All the poor and powerless all the lost and lonely, all the thieves will come confess and know that you are whole.
4: What chain is around you tonight? If it's around something in your mind, if it's a lie, that there's been a, a stronghold in your life, I just wanna picture it tonight. And I wanna sing to that, and I wanna say that our God breaks every chain, no matter what it is, big or small. It can be something really tiny right now, or it can be something huge that has a huge impact in your life. And so I just wanna envision that, I just want to, to lay it before the feet of Jesus because that's where it belongs. It's already been taken away. It's already been taken care of. So let's let's just sing that out. I hear those chains falling because it's going to happen to Let's sing that out. Oh, and I hear those chains falling. Thank you, Jesus. Because I hear those chains falling. Right
1: There are no zeros. I will not forget that. There are no zeros. If not Ruth, why not me? And then that last, I think this song, as far as speaking about power. So when I was over the summer, what I kept hearing and hearing is, all power and authority has been given to me, now you go. Jesus gives us power. And one author says that the power was actually supposed to be used as a gift the beginning of time God took his power and he breathed it out and what happened creativity and life what I see when I see Boaz is I see Boaz said here's my power here take what I have that's what I dream I'll tell you something a few weeks ago we wrote out these little cards and you came and you dropped off cards up here and we've had people sift through those to see the themes in our community and one of the main themes in our community, and it's sad to say, is people don't feel worthy. They don't feel they don't feel like a 10. They feel like a zero, or sometimes negative. And to me, what I see in this beautiful picture of Ruth and Boaz is the idea that God says, here's my power, give it away. Now, some of you in this room right now are powerless. Some of you are powerful. But wouldn't it be a beautiful image if we just gave God's power? way he says here's my power all authority and power have been given to me now you go and go that's the privilege of being the army of christ we to go out and share him with the world what amazing pictures oh thank you carolyn thank you so much for your words what i would like to do once more is lead us in the power just that chorus let us sing that and then you can go into the last song just i want to hear you sing more there's power in the name of jesus sing it out
0: song simply says it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise so as we leave this place tonight let's pour out our praise to the one who's worthy of it all the one who gives all power amen we just thank you for tonight. God, we thank you that all power belongs to you. And God, as we leave this place, but never departing from your presence, constantly remind us that throughout life, no matter what, you are in control and you hold all power. we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. We all sit together. Amen. Well, you all have a good night. Take care.